A special thanks goes out to the folks at Anchor.fm for bringing you this podcast. Hello again, everyone. Today, we ask the question, do you believe in UFOs? I'm Tom Zania, and this is Tom Reads Your Story. Coming to you almost live, it's time once again for Tom Reads Your Story, the number one spoken word podcast on the web for audiobooks, social media posts, current events, and just plain whatever. So let's start the show. For the next half hour, I'll be your host. I'm voice actor and podcaster, Tom Zania. And we are back. Welcome back, everyone. I'm glad you're here. Hey, listen, first of all, let's get this out of the way, right? I apologize for Tom Reader's story being a day late. I usually like to come to you on a Wednesday. Today, I'm coming to you a little late on a Thursday. Uh, And here's what happened. I uh, went to uh, my brother's annual get together for his birthday, uh, where he cooks and barbecues, uh, lamb on a stick. And it's a great time to be had by all. He lives of course in Michigan steps away from Lake Michigan. And this year I was able to make it, but here's the thing, getting there and coming back was a nightmare, a nightmare of plane delays. And both times I had to spend the night in the airport because of plane delays. Uh, I don't know what happened. I have to assume it was weather related. In either case, American Airlines did not communicate as to what the problem or problems were. Uh, I did get home safely, however, and uh, that coupled with the extent Intensive, unending, brutal humidity of New York City has just really slowed me down. Uh, it's a difficult thing. I don't have air conditioning in my home, and uh, I have to live in this kind of horrible uh, condition. That gets that gets worse and worse in New York every year. Uh, humidity. Because of global warming, which is real, okay? Uh, so that was it. I mean, that's that's what I have to tell you today. Um, and speaking of flying in the air, I've come across today a very interesting story. It has to do with UFOs. And I'm not here to convert you to believe that UFOs are real. I just, I find it kind of interesting. And um, I think you'll like this. This is by Jessica Hatcher Moore. It is from uh, the website Pocket, which I'm not familiar with. Uh, But this is a story uh, about two UFO investigators. Uh, much, maybe a little like the Roswell incident, which I'm sure most of you have heard of. 
Uh, I really think you'll like this. Uh, it's going to be, this is part one this week. Part two will be next week. And I think uh, it might have to be given to you in three or four parts, but I'm not sure yet. So here is, without further ado, uh, a very good storyteller story by what I who I think is a very good writer, Jessica Hatcher Moore. This is called The Berwyn Incident. The Berwyn Incident by Jessica Hatcher Moore. January 23rd, 1974. It was a cold, damp, and moonless night in Landrillo a small village built around the broad stream at the base of the Berwyn Mountains in North Wales. The village postmaster was watching television with his wife when it felt like his house parted company from the foundations. The sodden earth beneath the village trembled and the gray slate houses shook as if Branwen the giantess, a mythological goddess whose throne towered above the village, had risen again. Crockery flew off shelves and smashed onto flagstone floors. A deep rumbling accompanied the tremor, striking terror into the local community. The postmaster rushed outside and turned to check on his post office, a low-slung, slate-roofed cottage in the center of the village whose front room had been converted into a shop. But his eye was drawn to the left, where he saw a fireball in the sky. Could a plane have crashed, he wondered. Neighbors also stood and gazed skywards. The postmaster cast an anxious glance over the yard to the right, with its underground petrol tanks and rows of gas cylinders, and then set off towards the mountain to see what had happened, and perhaps offer help. Police who had commandeered another Land Rover set off after him. A hunting party was already up on the mountain, having finished their rabbit shoot, but other than the hunter's vehicle, the searchers saw no one. They climbed the hill until they were surrounded by heather and grass. The black and almost indistinguishable masses of the magnificent Berwyn Mountains extended to the southeast like giant knuckles. Police officers scoured the tufted landscape for anything untoward. There must be some clue to what had happened, the officer in charge thought. He could see white lights in various directions, but none of them looked unusual. That's it! One of the party cried out as something flashed in the sky. But the flash subsided as quickly as it had appeared. Eventually, the searchers accepted that there was nothing to be found and descended, baffled. No one in Landrillo found anything on the mountain that night. In the following days, search efforts intensified. Royal Air Force personnel, scientists, journalists, and UFO enthusiasts combed the surrounding land and interviewed locals at length, but came up with nothing. The string of strange events was officially recorded as a coincidence of natural phenomena, an earthquake measuring between three and four on the Richter scale by no means a major quake, but uncommon by UK standards, and a shower of bright meteors that burned up somewhere over the UK. Local teenagers joked about the Dinian Gerd, Bach, Little Green Men, at school, 
while locals reveled in the attention, each claiming their part in the night when teams of police and military descended on the area, and how, for 48 hours, Landrillo felt like the center of the universe. It would be another 20 years before Margaret Fry, a world-renowned UFO investigator, unearthed the evidence that turned the case into what is today. Wales's answer to the alleged alien crash site at Roswell, New Mexico, and one of the most high-profile UFO encounters in the UK. Do you need a good professional sound for your podcast? I'm Tom Zania, voice actor and podcast host of Tom Reads Your Story. I can give you the sound you're looking for for your podcast intros and advertisements at the price and turnaround you need. So don't hesitate and send me a message at TomReadYourStory at Yahoo.com. By the time Margaret retired to the Welsh-speaking village of Langernew from Kent, she was one of the premier UFO researchers in Britain, an older, more petite Dana Scully with soft curls, large almond eyes, and a quirky British Indian lilt. Now in her 60s, she had 30 years worth of investigating experience, but remained hungry for signs of alien life. Lately, however, life seemed to be throwing curveballs at her. Moving to Wales, a country with majestic mountains and a long coastline, brought her close to her family, important now that she was older, but posed a number of problems. Margaret was afraid of heights and the ocean, to name two. She had never learned to drive a car, and bus services in rural Wales were either unreliable or non-existent leaving her at the mercy of friends and family for transportation. And then there was the language. She found the Welsh place names, with their sparing use of vowels, impossible to remember. People were constantly telling her about paranormal incidents, and she could never decipher where they took place. Margaret had grown up in India, a magical land that had opened her eyes to endless possibilities and instilled in her a passion for knowledge and discovery. She was a third-generation white settler in what was then British India, where, ironic now, given her fear of heights, she spent the long, hot summers of Himalayan Hill Station where the mountains capped 6,000 meters. At night, the Milky Way would appear like a luminous seam in the inky black sky. The stars so bright that Margaret fancied she might reach out and pluck one. To earn small amounts of money during the school holidays, she would lead visiting scientists from British universities like Oxford and Cambridge down lonely mountain tracks into hidden valleys and craggy pockets to find alien rocks from outer space that had embedded themselves in the landscape the idea that there could be other intelligent life in our galaxy was self-evident to her. Later, perhaps, it was also a wish, the fervent hope that a higher intelligent hearkened a better future for humanity. As British India dissolved into sectarian violence, Margaret, 21 years old and married then with two children, 
hid families of Muslims beneath the floorboards at home, while Sikhs brandishing Kirpan daggers search for them. Fleeing by train to catch a boat to Europe, her railcar was attacked by militants. Her husband concealed trembling fugitives under their seats while Margaret hid others in the toilet. Margaret later watched as militants seized a woman with a baby. The woman fought them off to hurl her baby out of the morning train's window in the hope that at least her child would survive. When Margaret arrived in Southampton, she declared the UK the coldest, dreariest, most miserable place imaginable. She asked her husband, Why on earth have you brought me here? Later, she would muse whether her passion for UFOs harkened back to her time in India, where there was much to wonder at. Some 50 years later, however, living in a sleepy little town in North Wales, her biggest challenge was the loss of authority and creeping sense of irrelevance that came with age. The older Margaret got, the less inclined people were to listen. If introverts re-energize by being alone and extroverts by being with others, then Margaret is acutely extroverted, thriving on conversation and the company of others. She can also be naive, too naive to be a UFO investigator, her critics argued. But there were times, such as the Berwyn case, when her ingenious enthusiasm, coupled with dedication and exactitude, served her well. In her heyday as an investigator, Margaret had a direct line to parliamentarians, appeared on BBC television, and was in regular contact with British Aerospace. She still featured regularly on the pages of local newspapers as a woman in search of mysteries and as founder of the Welsh Fellowship of Independent Ufologists. She remained active with many friends in ufology. But the dawning digital era was elbowing her out. Colleagues were starting to challenge her online to view her as a relic of a bygone age. She soldiered on sticking up notices in shop windows, giving talks in community halls, monitoring around with her doting husband to chase leads, and striking up conversations in hairdressers and supermarkets. In July 1991, a friend of hers had passed on an intriguing lead. A nurse called Pat Evans had seen something strange up on the Berwyn Mountains in 1974, on the night of an earthquake and meteor shower. Margaret had heard reports of earthquakes coinciding with UFOs. In fact, she had a theory that UFO knots, her term for the pilots of alien spacecraft, knew about them in advance and came down because of them. She also had a dim recollection of an article in the Flying Saucer Review about a mysterious explosion and strange lights on a Welsh mountain many years ago. She was keen to investigate, so drove with two UFO hunting colleagues to Pat's village of Landerfell, a picturesque clutch of houses beside an ancient bridge over the River Dee, to interview the nurse about the events of 20 years ago. In her 30s at the time of the event, the woman who opened the door and invited Margaret in was now in her late 50s. She was sensible-looking in her heavy-knit jumper and spectacles with large, clear plastic frames, and she appeared eminently believable to Margaret, who had learned to rely on her instincts about such things. 
Most importantly, the intervening years had done nothing to cloud Pat's memories of that night, which she shared freely. At 8.38 on 23 January 1974, she was in the kitchen, where the Rayburn range stove was gurgling on full blast. One of these days, it's going to explode, Pat's husband often said of the irascible appliance. So when she heard a loud concussion, she leapt off her feet. Oh my God, it's happened. But the Rayburn was undamaged, and the house looked intact. What was that? shouted her teenage daughters, Diane and Tina, in a state of agitation. Pat couldn't say, but she thought the explosion had emanated from the Berwyn Mountains. She tried, unsuccessfully, to contact the village policeman, but eventually got through to someone at the direct headquarters in Colwyn Bay, a seaside town 40 miles north. Yes, we've had reports of an explosion of sorts, and we're not sure what's happened, the officer on duty said. Could it be an aircraft? Pat asked. It could be anything, really. We don't know. Pat and her daughters, who were also trained in first aid, drove onto the mountain to see if they could help. From a vast, elevated expanse of heather moorland, the Berwyn Range stretched away to their left, a row of sleeping giants. The girls became afraid. What if there were bodies? Blood? At the wheel, Pat remained stolid until she got her first clear look at the mountaintops. Then she stopped the car in disbelief. Sitting on the shoulder of the closest peak, Kadir Berwyn was a round, brilliantly illuminated reddish-orange ball. They sat watching it, aghast. At one point, Pat opened the car's window, but there was no sound. The object had no perceivable windows or doors. It was just a well-defined and uniformly colored reddish-orange circle that sat on the mountainside and glowed, like a huge, spherical ember. Then, Pat noticed smaller white lights around it, vehicle lights, perhaps. The large circle changed color several times before their eyes, from red to yellow to white, then back to red. They watched it for what felt like 10 or 15 minutes, before Pat decided to drive home. It was clearly not a plane crash, and it appeared that other people were already at the scene. They drove home mystified, unable to get the object out of their minds. After she interviewed Pat, Margaret knew one thing. Her fear of heights would have to be surmounted for this case. The fear, which had set in sometime after she left India, was a mystery to Margaret. And while she knew it was irrational, it was a powerful and primitive emotional response that she struggled to ignore. Anxiety in its insidious way, was manipulating her thought processes. Could the anxiety be linked to her upbringing in India? Or to the trauma of the war, which she had buried and never healed? Or was it just plain old caution replacing youthful nerve? All of these related to much the same thing, that Margaret's fearlessness was long gone, together with her youth. Now, as she made one last attempt at cracking a UFO case, she suddenly felt compelled to overcome it. Before she could change her mind, she asked the nurse to guide them up the mountain. It was a squally, overcast day, and leaves danced as they fell from the russet and golden trees. It was still light outside, but dusk would soon be approaching. 
Margaret watched anxiously from the passenger seat window as they crossed the stone bridge, its four arches stretching over a broad section of river. Turning sharply uphill, the cottages and demarcated areas of land started to fall away, as did the centuries-old walls made from piles of loose slate now covered in moss and lichen, which held up miraculously, without mortar, against the unrelenting elements. At the top of the hill, the women found themselves on that same expanse of heather moorland where Pat had been two decades before. Margaret felt the exposure keenly. The only signs of modern man were the milky-white outlines of domesticated Welsh mountain sheep. There, Pat pointed out the spot on the mountain where the UFO had been. Margaret, ignoring the flutter in her stomach brought on by the high vantage, began jotting notes about how long the journey had taken and making a sketch map of the area, delighting in the excitement of being back on a case. Margaret had had her first encounter with an alien spacecraft nearly 40 years earlier, in 1955, when she was in her late 20s, and it had changed the course of her life. It happened in Bexley Heath, an unremarkable suburb of London. Margaret was driving between pebble-dash houses when the car spluttered and died. What looked like a flying saucer then plumped down on the intersection in front of her, blocking the way. It was the shape of a cloche hat, but the color of pewter, roughly 35 feet across with a domed top, a platform around the base, and what looked like ball bearings for wheels. The craft sat still for about five minutes. Then it started trembling, tilted forwards, and rose while swaying slightly back and forth. Once it was above her, a single porthole opened. Margaret's heartbeat quickened as she realized there could be beings from another planet on board. But the craft continued to rise and then disappeared. When Margaret told her father, then working on Britain's atomic science program, he scoffed. Margaret felt a flush of anger. It was her first experience of not being believed. Her mother went to buy the local newspapers to see if anyone else had reported such a thing. Margaret's parents were hard-working, practical types who valued fact over fantasy, so Margaret held out no hope of winning her mother's support. It felt momentous when her mother came back waving the Irith observer, shouting, Margaret is terribly factual, she never lies. A policeman and several other people claimed to have seen the spacecraft that day. After that, Margaret's life straddled two worlds, the terrestrial and the extraterrestrial. When she looked up at the night sky, the planets and stars twinkled with new meaning, but the loneliness of being a believer in a land of skeptics replaced euphoria. She felt, briefly, adrift. Then, in 1956, Margaret's mother gave her a book on alien spacecrafts. Flying saucers have landed, written by George Adamski, a California mystic, and Desmond Leslie, an Irish eccentric. Margaret devoured the book and saw that the photograph of an alien spacecraft on page three looked exactly like hers. It gave her the final validation she needed. From that point on, it became Margaret's quest to show others that humans were not only intelligent species in existence, 
which she saw as a mission to promote worldwide understanding and tolerance. She soon became a researcher with the British UFO Research Association, Bifora, where her determination and insouciance made her a star. She worked on many high-profile cases in the course of her career, advanced the field and amassed a body of compelling research, but she still longed for elusive proof, a case that would definitely illustrate the existence of aliens. Standing with the nurse of the Berwyn Range, she felt she might, at last, be in reach of it. Weird, right? So, this was part one of the Berwyn incident. We will go through parts two, and it might be three parts um, to this story. Uh, depends on uh, my editing skills. And uh, I hope very much to be back on schedule uh, starting next week with a Wednesday episode instead of coming to you on Thursday. I hope you enjoyed this story. And uh, that brings us to the end of yet another episode of Tom Reader's Story. Uh, portions were pre-recorded. Please tell your friends if you enjoyed your visit today because we're always looking for new ones. Thanks, Anchor.fm, for this opportunity. I greatly appreciate it. Until next week, take care, everyone. Bye now. This is Tom Zania. For more information on my availability for your e-learning, commercial, or audiobook project, visit my website at www.tomzvoices.weebly.com. We hope you visit us again real soon for another episode of Tom Reads Your Story.